Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, this is Lainey. And welcome to Show Your Work, our podcast about work that is happening uh, in the week leading up to Lunar New Year, which is Friday, February 16th, my favorite time of year. Well, I have a few favorite times of year, but as you know, do I love Chinese New Year. So here's the thing, though, that I've never really understood. Uh, it, it, much like your other favorite times of year, uh, like <laughs> your birthday and Christmas, uh, I'm never really sure when it begins and ends. Like, it's kind of always Chinese New Year, and you've been talking about it on the blog for like a week, and then there's like celebrations, but then you wouldn't want to celebrate too long. Like, yeah. What are we in now? This is like the like anti-room period of Chinese New Year. So so I'm going to tell you something, and it's going to make you crazy because I know this is exactly the kind of thing that gets you into your 18,000 follow-up questions. And- the way that um, I on the blog and with my friends have talked, like the way I've talked about Chinese New Year is made white people simple. <laughs> because, because here it is. It is, there are so many elements involved in the season. It takes into account Lunar New Year and like like the lunar path and the lunar cycles, and it also runs on the solar calendar. And so <laughs> the way that the new year is set and the day that it's set, like February 16th, the day is always different, as you know, right? Year by year. Sure. And that is because it runs on the lunar calendar. Right. The, the new year's day is determined by the lunar calendar. However… The end of every year, <laughs> yes, the end of every year is every year, February 3rd. And the first day, the first official, official, technical beginning of the following year is always February 4th. That's a solar calendar date. Um, but you didn't tell us this. We've all been operating under no. the presumption that there was still time. It, but it's there is still time. Like, every year you give me all this panic about like… <laughs> There the, is still time. Don't cut your hair and like finding new yes. pajamas when all the pajamas from Christmas have already been taken out of the stores. Correct. And you're all like with the pajamas and it makes me nuts. So there is still time. Like, you know, when I tell you to clean and get your hair cut, you have to do that before Chinese New Year Day. But how close? Some of us maybe went to get at a split end uh, last weekend and instead took four inches off our hair and are very proud of ourselves. That was perfect. That counts? Well, because last weekend, you, I, I think you cut your hair on Friday? Yes. On Friday was the last day of the previous year, February 3rd. Not that oh, I no, knew no, actually, that no. because you've been holding Saturday out Saturday was. But you were good. You were really, really good. That's fine. That's totally fine. But now, like, I'm in limbo and I don't have New Year hair until two weeks, until uh, a week from now. Anyway, white people simple. Remember? Sure. Um, and so as, 
as you know, if you've been reading the blog uh, over the last few days um, and for the 12 business days leading up to Chinese New Year, the Lunar New Year, um, I do my mother, the Chinese squawking chickens, readings of what the following year will mean for each sign. And this year she's added an element of, you know, an added, if, if this was figure skating, she added an, like another twist to a jump, right? Instead of a single axle, we're doing double axles There's a now. level of difficulty. Yes. Right. And the, the added level of difficulty is adding in the elements. Right. Fire, earth, metal, uh, wood, and water. Mm-hmm. And so I have been letting people know if you're born in 1933 and a rabbit, you were a wood rabbit. Well, I don't know. Like, I haven't memorized it. So I'm just, that's an example. That might not be the exact example. Now, what's interesting is that for every sign that we've posted so far, um, my mother's elemental assignments have been different from the internet's. Huh. Interesting. And so if you go and Google some Chinese horoscope site, it'll tell you 19 – and again, I'm just pulling this out of the air because I haven't memorized the dates, but it'll tell you that if you're a rabbit and you're born in 1933, you are fire. And what she has been saying, according to my list, is, no, no, you're wood. Right. And so people have been, you know, it's really interesting the kinds of emails I've been getting because I've been getting emails from people and I've, they've been saying, like, hey, just wanted to let you know that your, um, your, what you posted was wrong because um, 1933 is actually fire and not wood. Right. And according to the according internet. According to the internet or whatever five Chinese internet sites they've checked. Right. So I'm like, okay, I go back to my mother and I'm like, hey, uh, people on the blog are saying you're wrong. No, no, no. Let's back up here. I I knew you would love this. (laughs) I've known you well enough and for long enough and I'm not the only one. You don't just go to your mother and say this. Uh, I know you. You couched it in what? There's some people. They don't know. They like the internet. The internet is ridiculous. I don't even know why I work on it. Anyway... (laughs) They say. Yeah. I had to explain to her that people Google, and I didn't use the word Google, but I said, you know, people now like to go on the internet and they like to read everything and they like to get the information. So you couched it. Well, I had to explain to her because otherwise she would throw back at me, where's this coming from? Right. Right? Because she doesn't know internet behavior and what people do, right? Right. So I gave her like an internet 101 and <laughs> how long have you been on the internet now and this is where it comes okay so i gave her the internet 101 and she pauses and you know i i and this is my mother so i always know tone and what pauses mean as we all know like when your mother pauses oh, all yeah. of us know what's in the pause and she says well if they want to believe what they're reading everywhere else, hmm. that's up to them. Hmm. <laughs> and it obviously she said this in Cantonese. Of course. It's even shadier <laughs> and sharper in Cantonese. Right. Um, and she then explained that, well, she didn't have to explain, but she reminded me that Feng Shui and Chinese Zodiac is like an old practice, right? And 
Well, I just need to interrupt you because whenever I have a question, it's like talking to somebody about religion. Whenever you get to a question that's a bit too like, it's like, well, I don't know. Feng shui is old. It's complicated is often the answer. So yes. I appreciate that. I don't understand much of it. Uh, in fact, I don't understand it at all. Part of it is because I, I don't read Chinese. So a lot of the ancient books and texts, I, I wouldn't know what to do with. Anyway, so again, we are a very, very old culture. So a lot of this shit is super old and there's like magical mystery, spiritual shit involved. And so like all magical, what do you, give me a word for it, magical disciplines. Uh, sure, I guess old, realms, yeah. It, it gets lost generation by generation. What I mean by that is that as Chinese culture has modernized, and especially like modern China right now is like the leader in face tuning apps. So <laughs> what you're saying is it's a photocopy of a photocopy. Yeah. Like there is an entirely new generation that isn't interested in that or hasn't, that we haven't trained any new or many, many new masters with the discipline and the texts of the old days. So there is actually out there a lot of wrong information that hasn't come from like legitimate schools of feng shui and zodiac study. And it's all over the internet like because this is so interesting and sexy for people, especially like Westerners, that a lot of the new feng shui masters don't have the training that the old feng shui masters had. And so they're putting out in her in her words, there's a lot of junk out there. Right. Um, so there are old texts that, and I can't even understand myself, like a lot of it. She kept on saying, they don't have the 60-year-old old text that only is created once every 60 years by the moon of whatever. And I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm just telling you what people are saying. And she was like, well, I'm telling you that the internet doesn't have the 60-year-old scroll. So, so what you're telling me is that your mother is a feng shui Hermione Granger. Correct. I, I love that you use that analogy because she's not a master. She, but she has done the research. She's gone into the old library, into the restricted section, and she has studied. <laughs> I would like a photo, please. Uh, I would like evidence of this. Um, just, I want to see her surrounded by the big dusty tomes. That would be entertaining. Right. She's like Hermione. She's gone into the restricted section. She has like, you know, studied from the old master's texts. And so to answer the question for those of you who've been emailing and many of you have been emailing and saying like, well, uh, it's wrong. Uh, her final word on that after she said, if they want to believe it's their choice, her final word on that was, there are many things you can read. Everything is a choice. If you would like to go visit those websites, please do so. However, she is not changing what information she's passed on. She stands by it. And, um, <laughs> and the end. But anyway, my final, final point on this, but I know you'll have another question, I'm sure, is that even in feng shui, there's fake news. <laughs> so really, you just built us all to that, all to that line. Okay. Yeah. Here's my question to you. Uh, reading the other 
it's fun to read when you read the predictions because yeah. sometimes you know people born in that year or whatever. And I'm particularly entertained when you write about the youngest sign uh, in a given year because they're always teenagers and you're always yeah. like, watch your kids, mm-hmm. check their phones. Um, but you have said before that you don't or your mother doesn't like have predictions for years beyond whatever, 12 years old or something, whatever is sort of the cycle because they're not sort of fully formed people yet or That's whatever. That's right. Okay. So my question then, you mm-hmm. can take this to her. I understand if you yeah. cannot answer it on the spot. So what determines their luck? Is it the luck of the signs that are raising them or are they just like amorphous blobs that don't run into good or bad or what? What's the, how are they governed then before, before they have fundamental free will or whatever it is that kicks in? Well, what a lot of people would say is that it's, it's a lot on their parents. Right. And that's, it makes me a little bit sad because like lots of kids don't have the luxury, right? Of having two parents, one parent, or even one parent, like, but yeah, it, it really depends on the community that's around them and the, the, the guardian that they have. So you carry the luck of whoever's carrying you mm-hmm. is what you're saying. That's right. Like I have a very close family member who uh, took her son to a feng shui master and the feng shui master made some pronouncements about the first seven years of her son's life, which was that it was going to be um, quite temperamental and that it was up to her, the mother, to endure. Right. It was almost a test for the mom. Huh. Yeah. So it's, yeah. So as you said, it's not exactly the age of 12, but there is a period of time in childhood where all of that doesn't become clear yet. And then conversely, and we'll get to this later because it's a little bit hilarious. After 70, the readings don't matter anymore either. It's almost like they're like, hey, you made it to 70. Congratulations. What more do you want? We're not fucking reading for you anymore. Enjoy. <laughs> Enjoy. Yeah. Like, indulge. Yeah. So Cover for those forehead, of you who you have will. questions, like if those of you who are like, hey, I'm a 1977 uh, snake and the web says, or other sites are saying I'm water, but you're saying I'm wood. Should I follow water or wood? Wow, this is confusing. Listen, follow 1977. That's the year you were born. So for those of you who have questions about that, it's your birth year. Just look at the line that corresponds to your birth year, and that's it. I mean, I'm glad we we sorted out this amorphous <laughs> beginning-ending circular situation. Listen, it's a magic that I – like, and this is what – this worries me, and this is going to different places, but um, I don't know much, and she has tried to, like, download – all kinds of information. And every year there's like, it's so heavy. Like last week, Yasik and I, or I had a panic because we both at the beginning of the year get protection scrolls and they're brought to us from Hong Kong at a temple. And we're supposed to carry them with us. And then we're supposed to burn them at the end of the year. And you burn them at a particular time of day. And I couldn't find mine. And like, then I found it, but it turns out that I might've been carrying his and I, it was like, I had a major. So I, I have not like, I actually, you know, I, I actually, and this is stupid of me and I want you to keep telling me I'm stupid. I actually, and this is part of show your work. I have not been writing this down. A lot of it I've just tr- like tried to hold in my head. And so I guess I should start a notebook. 
because she has downloaded so many things to me. Like last year, I remember, like, or two years ago, I remember she said to me, hey, every, when I'm not here, remember every year of the monkey, and it's gone, I can't remember what she said. No, it was, Yasik is like, but it's on the site. And I'm like, no, it was personal to me. Like it was personal to us. Like you have to caretake for whatever it is. Yeah, you better write it down. I, I do. I do need to write it down. And also, this has the makings of a kind of hilarious rom-com somewhere in here. I don't know. I lost my prediction scroll. Got to go to Vegas. Got to get it. Anyway. All right. Shall we? Let's. Okay. So we have not really talked about Will Smith yet. No. And I mean, you know, it's kind of because – this is a weird thing, but I was thinking about this. His work, like to hustle, it kind of all happened – almost before our time, right? Like Will Smith is one of a very few people who's like, yeah, he's there. He's good. He can do whatever. And I think because of that, we took it for granted that this guy who was a rapper then starred in one of the seminal network comedies of maybe the seminal network comedy of what, the 90s? Yeah, I would say, and you know, created and co-created, right? Like it wasn't just a, an yeah. actor for hire, yeah. That's right. And then from there went on to become the biggest movie star in the world. Yeah. And there were deliberate choices that were made that he has talked about that have been studied. You know, um, he uh, was in that film Six Degrees. Of Separation. That's one right. One of my favorites. That's right. And – his character at uh, in that film was gay. Yes, and then afterwards, it's very been famously been been. It's famously known now that he like was like, well, I'm not I'm not playing a character like that again. Right. That said, that was that was a play that was adapted for the screen, uh, and the character was was gay in the play. But yeah, he chose not to. It, that was a, a movie he made at the time, and then didn't want to do again. Right, like. And many people consider that to be one of his finest performances. I, I think it still is. And it certainly was at the time. It was He was so young still. God, I. it was the quintessential I'm growing up move, except that instead of like what was available for young actresses to show they were grown up and not teeny boppers, he just decided to make a movie with Donald Sutherland and Stalker Channing. Yeah. Like, that's amazing to even have that opportunity when you are 21, 23, whatever he was. And and many people have lamented, pointed out the fact that since then he has avoided that kind of acting opportunity, a small-ish film, um, that kind of specific story. Yeah, it was kind of indie before indie. Yeah. But you don't mean that he is actively, vocally avoiding gay roles. No. I mean, the kind of film, the the genre of it, where it fits into the cinematic landscape. The intimacy, if you will. That's right. Mm-hmm. Not to say that he doesn't make serious films. I mean, Concussion came out a couple of years ago. He is doing dramas, but there is always, that th- those dramas are always almost safe, right? Oh, yeah. They're safe and yet kind of epic. Uh, you know, it's... They're as small as giant movies starring Will Smith can be, uh, but when it's The Pursuit of Happiness or movies like that, they're always like, 
you know, people would say, like, you never lose the Will Smith inside the movie, right? That's right. Right. Which I think in Six Degrees of Separation, you kind of did. I believe it. And I, I, I totally agree with you. The reason I pitched Will Smith this week is because I wrote a post about him um, reacting to his Instagram video honoring his son. Um, and it was because Jaden had, like, gotten… Yeah, let's back up and… Yeah. and Unpack that sentence. Okay. There's an article about Will Smith reacting to his own Instagram. Yes. Which was in turn a video making fun of his son. Yes. On Instagram. That's right. I mean, I just… <laughs> I, I was thinking about this when you were talking about your mom earlier. There was a great thing that I saw a couple of years ago, uh, and it was like, how to solve your anxiety. And it said, first step, figure out if your problem is a real problem or an internet problem. And there was sort of like a flow chart, you know, and it was like, do you have an internet problem or a real problem? A real problem, an internet problem, or then the choice was, I don't know. And then the subset there was, is this a problem you could explain to your grandmother? And the choices were <laughs> yes or lol no, <laughs> um, which is when you know if you have an internet problem. That phrase, that tree of, of what it is we're talking about that we just discussed here is uh, my, it's my delight of an internet problem, uh, which may become a theme this episode. Anyway, please continue. So I wrote in this post that I posted that Will Smith is great on Instagram mm -hmm. and not all celebrities are. In fact, many of them are shit at Instagram and they have the amount of followers that they have because you know, of their name. But they're not that great. I would even sometimes, and oh God, protect us all. No, just protect me. I would say Beyonce definitely has had Instagram highlights. Mm -hmm. Of course, Beyonce used to hold the record for most likes on Instagram when last year she posted the twins or that she was expecting twins photo. And I get that. But I wouldn't say that like Beyonce's Instagram captures the full potential of the app. Of the app? I thought you were going to say of the artist. Oh, my God. I mean, sure, no. I guess the best Instagram, and I am a reluctant adopter. I really like Twitter where you can just hide behind words. And I, also, I don't even like it when people add photos or GIFs to Twitter. I'm like, you're, you're diluting the purity of it. <laughs> But I guess that's kind of the glory of Instagram, right? It can be as many things as you can think of for it to be. That's right. And again, to go back to the point, not every celebrity does this well. Some do it really well. What are – let's just take celebrities. Let's just say, you know, somebody who is garden variety famous. Um, what are the categories of doing it not that well, would you say? Like, there are the people who only post photos of themselves at premieres that we can get at, like, a million other sites. Yes. There are the ones who – and I generally just don't like this on social media anyway, like the quotes. Do you mean, like, they're typing a message or just, like, inspirational quotes from – The inspirational quotes, I hate them. Like, I know Diane Kruger does this a lot. Like, there's a lot of – I don't know how it happens. Either you screen cap it on a Google – page and then you end up like uploading it on um, 
on Instagram or you write it in your notes and I don't know, change the font and then like post it. That doesn't interest me at all. Right. So there's that. And I, when I see that, like, are you looking up Diane Kruger? Right. Did you find one? Uh, stand by. I'm scrolling past uh, some dogs here <laughs> and uh, some modeling photos. And uh, oh, yeah, okay. Stay away from negative people. They have a problem for every solution, Albert Einstein. This one is written on a whiteboard. Okay, great. So, how many likes does it have? 490. Uh, no, sorry. Uh, 41.6 thousand. Okay, I don't know why 41.6 thousand liked it. Well, like, I, mean, I, I wouldn't like that. I wouldn't, I would, I would, I'd be like, really? You're not getting my like. There's a whole other <laughs> philosophy behind that. There's a book that's either just coming out or uh, has just come out. This is not a plug. I haven't even read the book, but I'm intrigued by the title and the concept. And it's called, Why Did You Push That Button? And it's all about why do we do that? Why do you like a celebrity's page when, like, if I clicked like right now, my one like is not going to make any difference in her 41.6 thousand. Uh, I haven't read the book. I would read it. Please send it to me. Um, but yeah, okay, fair enough. There's also a burning heart right next to it just to, you know, kind of… There. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, like, it's so a teenage was... girl's yearbook is Correct. what you're saying. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So Will Smith's Instagram is not that. Busy Phillips's Instagram is not that. Busy Phillips, obviously, we all know now, is one of the best celebrities on Instagram. She's She's… Great. Right. She's doing a mini movie about her life all the time. Yes. But also funny and random. Um, and I love Busy Phillips on Instagram. Um, and I didn't think that Will Smith… Well, I guess I don't… I didn't think that I would need to think about it. But he hasn't… He hasn't been on Instagram for very long. It's been, what, six weeks? A two months, maybe? Um, and he's great on Instagram. But again, I guess like the thing is, he hasn't been on Instagram for very long because he hasn't had to be. Like the thing with some of these people is that we're talking about is, you know, you still hear every year or 18 months or two years, I hear people say, well, you know, we wanted to cast so-and-so and then in the, in the room or after the room, it came down to who has a bigger social media presence, who will bring more attention to our project. As much as some people are better at it than others, some people are having fun with it more than others, the idea behind all these posts is I got to keep up. I got to keep people liking me and knowing me, not just because they're narcissistic and that's the narrative that people like to talk about, but because literally that can make the difference between getting a job or not. Will Smith has never had that problem. He is not concerned about how many people like him on Instagram at all. Like, it, if anything, it's kind of like a, like a retired dad's toy. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, this is exactly what his Instagram has become, especially his Instagram post paying tribute to Jaden um, and his milestone on, on Spotify. He, like, dressed up as Jaden. And this was, like, art-directed. Right? Like, it was, <laughs> like, he went and got, I don't know, someone to color his hair, and he went and got the outfit and the chain around the neck, and someone shot it, and it was edited well, and the music is great. Like, he art-directed it, and it was hysterical and super dad, like, like, super dad corny. It's a hobby, is what you're saying. Yeah. This is Will Smith's hobby. 
And also super relatable because like, listen, parents with teenagers make fun of their teenagers all the time. I mean, I look forward to it. That's something I – that's a day I anticipate uh, yeah. with great pleasure. Yeah, sure. So I I really, I really thought to myself, okay, so we've now discovered that Will Smith is amazing on Instagram. Now, at the same time that Will Smith joined Instagram, Bright came out. And it – you know, Netflix said that it did huge viewership – They've already asked for a sequel, even though the movie was, like, trashed. The trashed is generous. <laughs> like, it was I, – I think it was – I keep wanting to say, like, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. That's how people reacted to that movie. Like, they were offended by how bad it was or, or how – yeah, there were not enough words for how yeah. poorly it was received. And it wasn't just a shitty movie, like a Michael Bay shitty movie – it was shitty on the level of the story it was trying to tell because there was, like, a race element here. Um, they were trying to tell, like, it was, they were trying to make it a race allegory. So as a black actor, one of the most successful black actors who has been, and remember, he and Jada were one of the first celebrities to step up during Oscars So White and be like, the Oscars, you suck. We're not coming. I mean, they weren't invited that year, but like, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I hate, like, this is not good. This is not acceptable. I mean, they really stepped out and criticized the Academy. Yeah, they put their money where their mouth is. That's right. So you, they're leaders in their community. And then he makes this movie. There are many black Americans who were like, what the fuck are you doing? I think Chance the Rapper sent out some like really good tweets voicing his disappointment about Bright. <laughs> so, <laughs> so on an artistic level, it was a failure. Right. But that, sorry, that's not so rare for Will Smith. There are often, as, as unimpeachable as he is at the box office in terms of like ticket revenue and so forth, there are as many valiant swings uh, and misses as there are hits, right? He's not – this is why you're still talking about six degrees of separation mm -hmm. 30 years later. Not everything that he does is a critical success or even, like, palatable. True. And so I agree with you. It was an artistic failure, but it was also a message failure. Yep. So you have, like – a double failure, a failure on both sides, and yet it still gets renewed because so many people watched it. And then, like, five minutes later, we're not fucking talking about it anymore because Will Smith is great on Instagram. Like, I know we've just spent five minutes talking about Bright, but the reason why we're actually talking about this is not Bright. It's because I saw this video of him on Instagram, and I'm like, oh, my God, he's so interesting on Instagram. We have to talk about this. Well, you're actually taking me to a really interesting place because – what I was preparing to say is, yeah, of course Will Smith is amazing on Instagram because he is charisma personified. That's his whole thing. He always has been. Even in, like, his most famous non-role to date, when Tiffany Haddish is talking about Will Smith <laughs> on the boat, uh, on the Groupon trip, she, he's even charismatic through her voice yes. when she's telling the story about him. That is his natural state of being. 
And so it was all said to be like, yeah, and like, of course he's funny. And I thought, why is he choosing all these roles that are actually diametrically opposed to charisma? Great point. I don't know. It's almost as though somebody told him that wasn't worth that much. And he spent the last, God, I don't know, 25 entries on IMDb trying to be something other than incredibly magnetic, which he still is in his serious roles, but like, yeah. God. Well, this is a, I really like where you're going with this because now we have comparisons. Now we have a compare and contrast situation because someone we have talked about before on this podcast, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, mm. and we have mentioned his charisma. Sure. Yeah. He's extremely charismatic, but I never feel like he's putting it in a box and putting it on the shelf so that I'll buy him carrying around like a gun to save the world. Well, he's great on Instagram too, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Okay. And he's been able to transfer that charisma or back and forth in his film roles. Right. Like, as I said… So you were talking about the disconnect, right? Like, we know Will is charismatic, but these roles in these movies… That disappears. And that's not to say that, look, like, of course there's charisma involved in Suicide Squad, in Men in Black, you know? Of course it's, you want to watch him on screen, but it's not that easiness that, you're right, Dwayne The Rock Johnson carries around. Or, uh, as I think I've said on this podcast before, uh, in my house, he is Maui. Dwayne The Rock Johnson is synonymous with Maui. Mm -hmm. But, like, that doesn't take itself all that seriously. Mm -hmm. That role, that situation, whatever. Yeah. Those songs. And he can still roll on and be like, yeah, I am seriously considering a presidential run. And we're like, okay. Yeah. (laughs) And in your house, in about a year or maybe sooner, he's going to go from being Maui to the man in Jumanji. Right. Jumanji is, I went to see Jumanji over the holidays and I had the best time. Is it the best movie of all time? No, but I had a great time. It was funny. It was, it moved. Um, I had never seen the original Jumanji, so I didn't like come into it with like, oh, I don't know what this is. You know, I don't have, it didn't, I didn't need to have the background. And yet it was such a good time. And I don't think I can remember the last time I had a good time at a Will Smith movie. Well, what I was thinking was, yeah, you had a great time at Jumanji, and you said uh, it was just fun. It was so much fun. It was a great time. I, you said it 30 seconds ago. I don't know why I can't quote you back. But, of course, I was thinking, oh, you know what everybody says that about is Paddington 2. This is just a great movie. I had such a great time. <laughs> and, of course, who stars in Paddington 2? Your fave. Hugh Grant, Your right? beloved. Who- <laughs> Hugh Grant is kind of the opposite of Will Smith, right? Like, he has nothing going for him except charisma. You would laugh him out of the theater if you saw him holding a gun. Uh, Even his, like, mob movies have to be comedies because as if. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a good time. Yes. You're right. Somewhere along the way, Will Smith not only maybe was told, like, Easy on the charisma, but, like, easy on the entertainer. But I don't – do you think in his mind he – like, I don't know that he says this consciously. Like, 
I think he thinks that he's an entertainer. I don't know. I'd say, like, remember Miami? Yes. Along the lines of Miami and Men in Black and those really, really fun albums, those were still entertainer Will Smiths. Mm -hmm. That's still when, in fact, I'd say they probably coincide with, like, the consciousness of Jaden and Willow. Mm-hmm. that's kind of when it shifted, right? That's when he started being a lot less publicly playful. And maybe, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, well, that's just a part of my life I save for my family now. Like that it's not that he's not that, but it's for them. It's not for us. But there is a real shift in all those song lyrics we all used to be able to know and yeah. And sing. I know summer, I can. Summer, summer, summer time. Sure, <laughs> like, but even like. It's a great jam. I, I, I can still like, I can sing Men in Black. I can like, I know all the verses to Miami. You know, like it's, it's even more recent than, than Jazzy Jeff. So is there a correlation here between Dad Will on Instagram um, and the fact that we don't get to see Dad Will on screen? I, I don't know. Like I. I don't feel equipped to answer this question. Is it because I'm not a parent? Like, I, I, I'm not sure, but I just looked at his, like, resume and 2018, so we, yeah, we're going or we've, we're in the year where this will be the 10-year anniversary of Hancock. And mm-hmm. I quite enjoyed Hancock, even though I don't think it was a great movie. Um, but... And I, I think Hancock was like a bummer at times. Like he was a bummed out superhero. So like, yes, there was like an air of bummerness about it. But he was super, like, I only remember a fun time. Right. About Hancock. I was like, oh, ha ha. Here's the spin. Um, you take Will Smith, who up to that point had been like charisma, charisma, charisma. You make him a superhero who decides, fuck it. I don't want to be one anymore. I just want to drink and be an asshole. Like, he made that right after Hitch. Guys, like, <laughs> Hitch was peak Will Smith, remember? No, yeah. you go 90 and then she goes 10. Anyway. So, it's been 10 years. That's a long time. Yeah, but it's been 10 years where his children have been uh-huh. coming into their own, right? Like, not just, oh, children, parents, whatever, but, like, they are both performers in their own right. They both have kind of made marks and and roles and Will Smith having been Will Smith for the last 25 30 years has been really overt about protecting them and and guiding them and you know wanting to do what they want to do he had a really poignant quote uh maybe a month ago about how you know when it's time to stop pushing your kids remember mm-hmm. uh and he talked about how in the era of whip my hair one morning willow came down to the breakfast table and she'd cut all her hair off. She would have been about 12. And he was like, okay, all right, we're pushing them too hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's totally out of context, but that he noticed and that he talks about it tells me where his focus has been. So it could be that, you know, if you are uber conscious of guiding, not just, you know, sort of the people you influence, but like your children. And of course, let me not forget, Will Smith has an older son, Trey, who's uh, probably in his 20s now. Yeah. Um, but maybe maybe it influences his decisions. Maybe it influences the kind of projects he takes on. Because, of course, he could still be making 
every rom-com known to man, and they would be huge and successful if he wanted to. Well, I just, yeah, I wonder then, now that Jaden and Willow are quite independent, I mean, they've got like their own fashion deals, record deals, Jaden, again, has like reached a milestone on Spotify, he's joined Instagram. Sorry, I just got to pause you again. I know this is what we're talking about. (laughs) But I was sitting here waiting for you to go, Jaden has reached the age of majority. And you're like, no, no, has reached a milestone on Spotify. Of course. All right. Yes, go on. So, and now Will is on Instagram and really, really, really great on Instagram and having fun and showing us that side again. Now I'm looking and I'm, I'm the thing that's jumping out to me on his coming next list is Aladdin. He's Genie. Oh, yeah, there you go. I mean, that'll be great. That'll be super fun. Um, And we could use some fun. I also think, like, he's kind of a weird age, right? Like, Will Smith is, what, what is he, 50-some-odd? He's 50 this year. Like, he's turning 50 in September. Will Smith is 50! (laughs) Um, He's 50, but you kind of don't think of him as being, you know, Old. I was thinking that celebrities who don't take themselves too seriously often play themselves on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like, that's kind of the mark of people who, <laughs> like, you know, can play. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if he's too young to play himself on Curb. Like, he seems like he's not quite in that in that place. But I would like to see that. I would, I would think that would be a nice cross-promo with Aladdin. Oh, my God. He'd be great on Curb. Right? You're, but you're right. I mean, Will Smith will always present, like… 39. At best. At best, right? At he's, oldest, I should he, say. Yeah, he's almost 50. First of all, he'll never look like post-35. Um, but yeah, he'll always present mid-30s. And um, and now we're going to see him as Genie. But yet, he's like dad-gramming all over the place. It's Yeah, it's a really interesting time for him and his career, I think. And it's an interesting time for us to talk about it because I think I, we'll be able to cycle back to this. I would like to cycle back to this. Hey, we'll, we'll still be doing this podcast hopefully in two years. I would like to cycle back to this in 2019 when Aladdin comes out and when we can reassess, hey, was Instagram like a turning point here in yet another stage of Will Smith's career? I think that's going to be really interesting. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. So when you talk about, you know, will this be the moment that we see Will Smith's career have turned? um, I love that because it's one of those things that sometimes things sort of seem to turn. And sometimes there are people who really make a definitive choice and go left or release an album or do whatever to, okay, I'm also this. I want you to see me in this way. Um, so I was really happy at literally the 11th hour before I arrived for the podcast tonight to see this article about Gina Rodriguez uh, directing the episode of Jane the Virgin that aired on Friday night. And 
Of course, I read it. I don't watch Jane the Virgin. You're going to yell at me. Let's not do this this week. Um, however, I do Just have things. It's all I want from you. Just take a browse around. After that, you can watch whatever you want. <laughs> however, I do have major appreciation for Gina Rodriguez. Um, like in general, right? Talking about charisma, you can't not. Yes. Oh, she's irresistible, captivating, all those words. And I immediately devoured this article. It was about her process of directing. It was her first time. It got me right at the title. Like, I love even that her episode was the number of… Is that normal? Like, it was the 74th episode of the series. Right. And the episode was called Chapter 74. I mean, that's a Jane the Virgin convention. Um, They release every episode as though it's a chapter in Jane's life. And it's like her autobiography. And there's a narrator who I love. Um, who tells the story, right? Okay, then my point means nothing, but I not well, what knowing… what were you going to say? Well, I really like that, you know, it was so spare. It was just right, like matter of fact. I directed the episode called Chapter 74. Well, you don't think the directors named the episodes though, do you? No, I know that the writer and the creator, like, or, you know, in this case, the creator and the writer um, named the episodes, but I do like that there's not some sort of attachment to it where all the time… When we look back on her career, we'll be able to pick out like amethyst. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It'll be like a very innocuous set of words. Chapter seventy-four was my first directing. Fair enough. I, I get where you're going here. It's very, it's it's understated. Yeah. I mean, what's most interesting about this is, uh, assuming you had never heard of the internet before, I would spell out that Gina Rodriguez plays Jane on Jane the Virgin. Uh, And so directing the episode also means directing herself, which is a challenge for the first episode of TV that you've ever directed. Often when this happens uh, on shows, it's the episode where, you know, uh, Olivia Pope is off on a plane somewhere. So they only have to do a lying down in the sun scene or uh, where Meredith Grey is sleeping with sleeping sickness. You know, they, they let the actor take themselves out of the action in order to get your feet wet. Because directing is hard. Um, And in TV specifically, and this is, I think, something that's really interesting to discuss, uh, on a TV show where Jane, I think, still does 22 episodes a season, which is bananas, um, the writing staff is there all year long. Uh, There may be one or two freelancers who are brought in to guest star, but they're there all year long. The directors, on the other hand, cycle in and out. Um, They are hired for um, an episode or a block of episodes, depending on how your show is made. They come in, they do their business, and usually what you do is you prep, uh, you prepare and you figure out your shots and you like go to your tech surveys, all things that she talks about, for exactly as long as you'll have to shoot. So if you have a 10-day shoot, you also have 10 days of prep. Then after that, you cut your episodes, you do your director's cut, and then you're out. You're done. You're on to your next uh, job. So it's maybe a month, depending on the length of your block or whatever. It's a it's a quick gig. And so reading about how she balanced her long, four-year-long gig of acting in Jane the Virgin and this extra 10, 20-day gig was fascinating to me. I really loved every bit of a relatively short article. And I I read this and I was like, oh, this is amazing. You know, like she's 25 and like she's been on the show 
and she's already directing. And then after I finished the article, I was like, let me just do more Googling on Gina Rodriguez. And then I looked at her birth year and it's 1984. So she's not 25. No. She's turning 34. Yeah, she'll be 34 in a few months. I didn't, like, if you had just pop quizzed me, we weren't doing this podcast and we were just like, whatever. Hey, how old do you think Gina Rodriguez is? I would never have come close to 30. Interesting. That's yeah. really interesting because I always think that without being dour or, you know, anything else that Ryan Seacrest could say critically on a red carpet, um, that she always seems mature, that she carries herself with a real kind of gravity and maturity. So uh, I guess I'm less surprised about the age. Now, and the reason why, I mean, like, before you guys start yelling at me for bringing up the age, the reason why is because we, over the course of this podcast, have have talked about in relation to, like, Margot Robbie and Jennifer Lawrence and comparing certain actors, Julia Roberts. There are some who arrive fully formed. They're never childish. They're never adolescent. Leftover teenagers. That's right. And... Most of the ones that we've cited in past episodes fit into that, even when they're 27, Margot Robbie, you never could picture them at 17. Like you, at 17, you would have imagined that they would still be how they are now. I mean, like Julia Roberts was only 18, right? When she made Mystic Pizza. Mystic Pizza. And like, that was a woman. Oh yeah, of course. So I, my point was going to be, hey, Duanna, we found an anomaly. <laughs> like Where, a young woman who seems like a grown woman? Yeah. Like we found this anomaly. Anomaly, Like Gina Rodriguez, she actually, like she presents as she's always, um, she's very together and, but she's actually only 25 and she does seem 25, but she's not. No. Um, no, she is grown and mature and uh, I just love that from the second that Jane the Virgin became the success that it is, she hasn't wasted any time with false humility or kind of being shy or waiting for, you know, I don't know, flattering magazine profiles and to say, maybe someday I will, whatever. Uh, You know, I brought up Kerry Washington and Alan Pompeo earlier in the context of Olivia Pope and Meredith Grey. They're extremely, extremely hardworking actresses, and they still didn't get to direct until later in their respective series and later in their respective careers. Mm-hmm. I love that Gina Rodriguez has no time to waste here. And, you know, she talks about how her showrunner was like, yeah, I'm not going to write you lighter in this episode. I could, but I won't. You're not getting a pass. Yeah. And then she says... And there are a couple of ways to take this. but And then she says that because she's so heavy as an actor, she wasn't going to have the time to prep uh, for her episode before she would ordinarily because she's acting every day all day. So they gave her an episode where she would prep or was able to do her prep over the Christmas break. This is the epitome of show your work. This is somebody going, ugh, I've been working 18, 19 hours a day because I'm number one on the call sheet on a show for the last four years. It's finally Christmas. I guess I'm going to work some more. I'm just delighted by this, but 
I, I don't know. Maybe I am drinking too much Kool-Aid. Maybe it's not that special. Maybe it's not that exciting. The parts of the article that are most exciting to me are the mundane parts, the part where she talks about having to, you know, change around a set or work around standards and practices. You can't show a sex toy, uh, but you still have to show that you're in a sex shop because they're on the CW. Um, which parts were most exciting for you? I... I, like you, I really like the having to work over the holidays part. And I like how she broke down. I mean, we are work junkies and we like the work porn. So I also liked how she didn't just say, I worked over the holidays. She broke down what work she actually did. So she um, watched every single episode of the show that she's on. So that would be, I guess, 73 episodes since she directed Chapter 74. And so she went back and she watched all of those episodes, but she watched them with a different eye. Like she was studying the people who've directed before her. So she was studying the technique. So by the time she was done, she was able to be like, hey, um, um, when Brad Zipperling is uh, directing um, an episode, he likes these kinds of shots. But when somebody else directs an episode, they like to go on the wide or whatever. I mean, she was really studying that shot making. I think I think that's really... Um, I think that's an interesting element of show your work that I don't know that we have taken a lot of time with, which is to go back and look at the work that you were part of, but um, look at it from the job of somebody else, which is, I mean, in my small way, and I think I've talked about this before, I've talked about being in the control room. Right. The control room when yeah. you're doing a live show, yeah. like the one that you're on or any sort of live award show or music show, another reason why we like them, is literally directed on the fly in the moment. And all the people who do that sit in a big room with a million monitors. Yeah, or sometimes a trailer, like whatever. But it's called the it's control room. It's a room or a mobile room, yes. And I have, I, I have, as I mentioned before, I've been in the control room a few times. I'm typically in front of the camera. It was like sexy as fuck to be in the control room and to see the jobs that other people have to do. Before that, I was ignorant to like how things came on the screen. <laughs> you know, um, so for those of you watching, like, or for those of you listening, watching, what listening at home where you are, when you're watching a show, any show, someone has to do the thing where the words slide across the screen. Like these days, a lot of times it's their handle on Twitter or Instagram at Laney Gossip or whatnot. Or sometimes something pops up in the corner and says, um, you know, uh, don't forget the next show is on in 20 minutes, um, whatever. It starts at nine o'clock. Someone does all that. <laughs> in a live show, right. by the way. The supers. Yeah. You're, yes. And I never knew how that worked before. And even just learning the terminology, like my favorite word, and this is the word that the director calls, it's a direction from the director, I love dissolve. <laughs> Okay, I just, I gotta, before... I uh, love Dissolve. Oh my God, Dissolve. We, before the show, we were talking about some sort of logistics here, and I was attitudinally telling Yas, like, you know I went to school for broadcasting. Dissolve is like the, the first thing that they teach you. Yeah. Like, and you do it with a little lever. Yes. And it's Dissolve too. That's amazing well, that that's your favorite. When you get to be the director, you call out Dissolve and somebody dissolves for you. Yes, that's right. But like... You know, it's, and typically it's, 
related to, you know, any director in a live show can take, they have whatever, whatever, five cameras that they're working with. And so, you know, when our director and I've only worked with female directors or on a live, actually mostly worked with female directors, it'll be like dissolve three. And I don't know. It's like the best thing ever. Every time she calls out dissolve, I'm like, oh fuck, there's the dissolve. I know it's basic as fuck. But what I'm saying is, is that like, it is fun to go back to something you thought you knew and to watch it from the perspective of somebody else's uh, chair. Well, it's so interesting that you say that because uh, though I used to work in, in live TV, uh, now I spend most of my time on scripted set, like uh, the kind that Jane the Virgin is. And so what I loved was learning about how she went about directing herself when she was in scenes, which isn't so much about the acting necessarily. Usually if you see, uh, you know, a set on a show, uh, you hear cut and then somebody comes in and says, oh, it's just not working, Harry. Make it more emotional or this or that or whatever. But 99% of the time in real life, those notes don't come up until take like five or six because the first three times somebody calls cut, it's because um, a camera guy bumped into a wall that was too close mm -hmm. or somebody spotted, you know, a plastic water bottle in a period piece or whatever. Um, so what I love about what she said is that she would do one take with herself in uh, as an actor and then go and watch playback, which is not super typical. Usually the director would be watching in the moment, watching headphones. And then once she had corrected whatever was wrong in the take that she watched, then they would go and do it again and roll it three times in a row in order to get variance in performance and that mm -hmm. kind of thing and allow for uh, camera people who needed to, you know, correct a move that wasn't so smooth. Also, what happens is you'll all be finished. Everybody's happy. Okay, great. And then you'll hear like camera B go, uh, I think it was a little bumpy there. Can I try it again? Because everybody wants it to be their best work. So she lets them do it three times in order to make everybody get it. And then they either go again or they move yeah. on. What I love about that too is that it shows so much confidence because it shows so much trust. It You have to trust people when you are in a role where you're already doing two things that other people are going to do their job. And so she's like, yeah, no, I'm fine. I'm not feeling insecure because it's my first time out. I feel like I'll let people do what they do. I would be delighted. Let's make it work and let's find ways. And I am prepared enough and I worked over Christmas break enough to make it worth it. Yeah. I think the word she used was fly. I did my preparation. And then when it was time to actually do the directing, it was time to fly. I really loved that that was the way she expressed the feeling because I think we can all relate to that or many of us can when you've actually put in all those hours and then when that work is behind you and it's time to fly, the flying is fucking fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a, um, there's a researcher on creativity uh, and I'm laughing because his name is amazing. Uh, it is, I'm going to massacre this, but stay with me. His name is... Mihaly Sistemahali, um, and he calls it flow, uh, that when you are in that ultimate state of flow, you are at your most creative, your most free, your most able to fly. Um, 
but it's hard to get there when you are, when everything's riding on you in two ways. You're number one on the call sheet and you're the director and everybody, like every move that you make could be screwing somebody up somehow in some way. And she was ready to let it go and let fly. It's really, it's quite inspiring actually to not be overthinking and over worrying, but going, no, I've done my work. I've prepared. I'm here. We can, we can do this. Let's let it go. So will you watch this episode then? (laughs) I'm not going to know what's happening. Oh my Jesus Christ. (laughs) There's a narrator literally to hold your hand. He's very nice. You He's know very what I'm kind. like. I like things that to start from the beginning. Oh my god! Like, okay, here. <laughs> when she was young, Jane Gloriana Villanueva. Blah 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 blah. Okay. Um, I, look, I I don't like to call on people too often to like yell at you and email you and whatnot. I don't care if you never finish Gilmore Girls. I just like that you sampled it and tried it and knew what it was about. Watch a Jane. I think you should watch this Jane, and then you can go back and figure out what's going on. But I don't care whether you watch this one or the pilot. Watch A-Jane. I would like to know what happens with you watching it after you've read this. Okay. I will do it in the month, in, like within the month. You see, you know. You know I need to put a deadline on you because otherwise you're like, I will do that at a time unspecified. <laughs> Okay, so I want to back into our next topic. Is there a name for, when I learn like a name for something, I will overuse it to death, like an epistolary novel. Do you know what that is? Yes. Yeah, it's where all, the whole thing is just letters written yes. back and forth, right? Yes. Or um, like uh, recitative is sort of dialogue that's kind of singing, but kind of not in the course of a musical or whatever. Okay. What is the word for the kinds of articles that we are about to discuss? Honestly, I I have not contributing to this in the way that you want to because the only word that just popped into my mind for this next topic is motherfucker. (laughs) Because we have now learned that motherfucker is Quincy Jones's favorite word. I mean, he could do much worse. (laughs) Um... So I don't know if that served the purpose of your question, Duanna. What I was trying to say was that we are about to uh, compare and contrast uh, grade 11 English style to Q&A interview style articles, for lack of a better word. There's got to be a word for that. Um, Both, as you pointed out to me, written by the same writer uh, that are... Uh, magically delicious in their, like, in their difference. Like, they couldn't be more opposite. They couldn't be more opposite, but there is one current of familiarity, and of course, that is the writer, and specifically, I know we're going to talk about Quincy, and we're going to talk about um, Bernadette Peters, but really, the star of this section of the podcast is the writer and his preparation. Well, I mean, let's get into that and get into that. First of all, I like how you're like, obviously, we're going to talk about Quincy Jones. Well, yeah, be a Pisces, jam. And and obviously, (laughs) we're going to talk about Bernadette Peters. I don't know if Bernadette Peters is a super obvious uh, person to talk about on Show Your Work, but they are brought together, as you point out, by one writer, uh, David uh, Marchese. 
I, I'd go Marchese, but I mean, sure. Marchese. Marchese? Uh, uh, who hails from Toronto, which we know because of Quincy Jones. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because during the Quincy Jones Vulture interview, David said, um, I'm from Toronto, and immediately <laughs> Quincy was like, oh, yeah, that show at Massey Hall, which, okay. <laughs> well, like, not to actually you, but actually, Quincy Jones says, where are you from? And David says, Toronto. And he says, oh, yeah, I was at that show at Massey Hall. Like, <laughs> I feel like I tweeted into the ether and was like, if you had said Etobicoke, if you had said Caledon, these are tiny towns in, like, the greater Toronto area, would he have had a story? Because I feel like he would. Milwaukee or, like, I don't know, Lake Wobegon. He would have had a story for anywhere that he could have talked about. But to David's credit, immediately he knew which show at Massey Hall. It was a legendary show. Um, and I think that that knowledge, and as you mentioned, he, David, is from Toronto. So being someone from Toronto and when a legendary show um, where, like, it was the Charlie Parker concert happens, of course – you and you're a music lover and you've studied your music, you're going to know. You're going to be able to reach back into your homework, that studying you've done, and be able to volley that back directly to Quincy Jones and be like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Quincy, go on. Well, I love that you said homework because there was actually kind of a companion article uh, about how uh, David Marchese prepared for this interview. And he talks about how he reads the biographies of any of his subjects several times over, how he goes through old interviews and old transcripts of interviews with them to kind of formulate a list of things and then memorizes it such that any route from any question he asks, he'll be ready for that person's answer and have a follow-up question. It's kind of mesmerizing. We'll link to it in the show notes, obviously. Um just to kind of digest how much must have gone into the Quincy Jones article. Um, now, we could just sit here and talk about the Quincy Jones article for an hour and compare and contrast it with the equally glorious but different uh, GQ Quincy Jones article, but we wanted to talk about it in contrast with a Bernadette Peters interview that was released earlier in the week. And the reason I sent this to you and the reason that I wanted to send it to you is because it's the same exact format. It's a question and answer. You're very aware that the, the writer is there. Uh, and she was, uh, what's the word? You used, when you sent it to me, you were like, we don't necessarily need to talk about Bernadette. This is more... When you're on the job and you're interviewing someone and they just give you monosyllabic answers, how you deal. She was stonewalling him. Here's a sequence about Gypsy, which, if you know, is kind of like the original stage mother musical. It's been like quoted and riffed on everywhere. Uh, he says, what was it like to do Gypsy again as an adult? I imagine that given your personal history, playing Mama Rose might have kicked up some feelings. Rose and Gypsy was like going through therapy for me. How so? Playing Rose helped me put a lot of emotions to bed. What sort of emotions, he says. <laughs> there was so much lacking in Rose, and that's why she had to prove herself through her children. Like, I can go on. In ways that reminded you of your mom, he says. 
let's just say the role was very interesting for me. Like I'm restraining myself from banging the table out of audio integrity, but are you not maddeningly frustrated here? Yes, maddeningly. Maddeningly. It is just this far away from being insulting to somebody who's trying to get something interesting out of you to slam up against a wall in that way. Now, I wasn't there. Maybe she was delivering it all with a very cutesy, flirtatious smile, but maddening. And yet he still crafts an interesting interview. Yeah. There are some really good anecdotes in this interview. And she did give to him. Like, it was a long interview. It's not a short read. No. They go through a lot of her career. And he actually gets away. And I don't mean to say gets away as in he was doing something bad. But he goes to places that... um someone with an ego wouldn't take very well. I mean, he puts it out there point blank. Like, you didn't make it in Hollywood. Right. Yeah, for sure. He puts it out there. And there are several times when he was like, oh, and hey, this play or this production that you did, um, like, wrapped after a day. I mean, that was amazing. (laughs) 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 What's amazing is that he says, yeah, what was this like? Uh, you know, when that, when you were doing this role and she was like, sorry, I don't remember that. And he's like, yeah, that's the one that closed in a day. <laughs> yeah. Like, so it, there were, are, it's not to say that she stonewalled him the whole time and it didn't make for an interesting read. In fact, this is a very interesting read, more interesting than I expected it to be, because I think that his work, what made, gave him the freedom to be able to push just like he did with Quincy Jones. Like, every time she stonewalled him, he was like, how? But this, but that. Here are the facts that I've brought with me to this interview so that every time you try and block me, I'm going to throw a fact at you about yourself that I know from you telling somebody else or me understanding your work that you can't run away from. And in the same vein, he did that to Quincy. Like, Quincy would tell him this crazy thing, like, whatever. The whole thing was fucking crazy. And there were parts when David was like, are you sure? Really? And it would only prompt Quincy to want to prove to David that whatever actually happened, happened, or that he actually feels that way. And he gave it more context, and he filled it in, and he usually had another story, right? (laughs) Yes. He usually had another story that made the original anecdote even better. It's bananas. Now, I, I, you know, I'm... Also looking through, I have sort of the two of them here and I'm scrolling back and forth. And yeah, having answers from Quincy Jones is never the problem, right? Uh, He, David Marchese said that he, there were two interviews that uh, came together to make this piece and that they dumped a whole lot of stuff because it was similar to what was talked about in the GQ piece, which I want to talk about in a minute. But uh, what I love about it is that you still craft it. You're still not just sitting back and letting somebody go, that there's just as much work involved in crafting a conversation with an amazing storyteller like a Quincy Jones as in a stonewaller like Bernadette Peters. Or maybe you can get as much out of a stonewall interview, if you keep going, if you keep pushing, as you can out of a, like, a font of joy. What I appreciate is that people recognized it. Um, he posted this on Twitter, and I was looking at the article, obviously. But then after, 
I went back to his tweet and I started reading all the responses. And people were like, this is great work. You know, this is solid journalism. It is clear that you did your homework. And especially in the Quincy piece, because he was able to keep up with Quincy. And Quincy Jones is like 84, almost 85. He's lived, as we know. And when he's extracting a memory from 1962 when he was in this place and playing with these people, David was right there. Oh, yeah, you mean when you guys played this song? Because to me, then the person being interviewed is like, yeah, okay, let me elaborate. Like, it was so well done that I – and the thing is, is that I – and you have too have worked in this area. Not so much in print, but we work – we have worked in broadcast interviews. Well, and I have to say, when you are interviewing somebody – uh, often you do one long conversation that then, yeah, it gets chopped up for television later That's on. That's right. Our interviews aren't typically like two hours long. These are long interviews where he had the pleasure of spending all that time at Quincy's house and, you know, they talked until the sun came up and went down again. Um, ours are sometimes at the most 10 to 15 minutes. So unfortunately, we don't get that time to breathe. But I will say that there is, and it seems so basic, but there is a benefit to going in there prepared. And I say it seems so basic because you wouldn't believe how many times it doesn't happen that, you know, that (laughs) the reading isn't done and the facts aren't memorized and disasters happen. Well, no, you would because you've seen… We've all seen junket interviews, which is when uh, your local reporter or, you know, somebody on Entertainment Tonight goes and interviews somebody for a movie, and then you're flicking channels later on, because remember when we used to flick channels, and you see the exact same people doing the exact same interview, but with a different interviewee or interviewer, I should say. Uh, And so you realize that there are many people who walk into those, because we've all seen those when, again, we used to flick channels while you were waiting for somebody to call for your dinner reservations or something, uh, who would say, so what was it like making this movie? That's not a question. Yeah. That is a waste of 45% of your three minutes. Mm-hmm. That's no, not a question. No. Now, you know me. I'm typically on the side of the reporter, especially during these junket situations when the yeah, actors are like yeah. rude and like, why am I answering the same question over and over again? And the answer there in defense of these reporters is, hey, you're selling a movie. You've only been given four minutes to talk to these people. So you kind of have to be like, what's this movie about? What's your character? So you can cut it into a two-minute piece to take back to Kansas on your local news channel to let the people know who haven't lived on the internet what this movie is about. So that they will go see your movie and give you money. That's right. So that like is not about that. That is a separate thing. Right. There are, though, situations not just in entertainment reporting, but also in sports reporting um, and in all other fields. And this is what makes me crazy, and it happens all the time in our business and in, like, sports reporting, where after the game, the sports reporter will go up to the player and they'll be like, how important was it to uh, get that first goal? Well, is… Is anybody ever going to say it wasn't important at all? Like, the answer is always going to be very. Right. So that 
how important or how happy were you or how exciting or how any question like that in this situation that starts with the how, get rid of it. You know, it's so interesting. I, You never know where you're going to go in these conversations because though you and I have both, as you say, we've both done some interviewing, um, the, the one difference is that you've been on television doing them. Um, and my interviews were for television, but not on television. What that means, usually the word is spearing it, and it usually happens when uh, there's not a host available to go and give the and do the interview with whomever it is. Uh, and this is what makes me think of David. Uh, I'm gonna keep mangling his last name every time. Um, David M. Uh, what's interesting about it is when you're spearing an interview and you're talking back and forth with somebody. You need to create a connection, but you can't laugh because your laugh at their funny story might be on the tape. And then you can't cut around it and you can't use that piece of tape. And people are like, who's that weird laugh? And that woman who can't say Marchese. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, you can't really react in the way that you want to. So talking about somebody who both is and isn't a part of the conversation is another interesting thing here because he is a character in the interviews, Mm -hmm. but he's also not, right? Like he is allowed to insert himself in as much as he's from Toronto. He's not anonymous. He says things like that you want an anonymous person to say, what about your mother? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, did this make you feel this way? But not so much that you are having a conversation between two equals. There's Uh still a level of anonymity there. And that was something that I really appreciated and respected because it was something that was a real challenge doing television interviews where you're not on television. And lest there be any doubt, I have no desire to be on television. But trying to create that air of intimacy with somebody when you both are and aren't there is, is something that he's done really well here. You know, you were just saying that, you know, what popped into my mind, and obviously it's not the same level of grand importance and political significance, but um, one of the most legendary interviews of all time is like Frost Nixon. Mm. Um, They've made films out of it, right? And miniseries out of it. And people talk about David Frost's approach to Richard Nixon, not in the same way that we're talking about like David and Quincy Jones, but I mean, in terms of the preparation and in terms of, yes, the interviewer there isn't coming as an equal to your point. Right. And it is a conversation, but it has a chemistry balance that isn't like the conversation you and I are having, for example. Yeah, exactly. And yet… It does have to feel in many ways similar. There has to be a chemistry that's established. And part of getting to that chemistry or the first part, and here's where we can tie everything together, is the work, the homework over Christmas and um, on the weekends, Gina Rodriguez, like working through it and studying it. Um, And there's a reason why Frost Nixon is such a legendary piece of journalism and why people go back to it and, I mean, Obviously, Richard Nixon was the president and such a controversial, provocative personality. 
But because he was a controversial, provocative personality, you had to go in there with everything you, like everything. But he was a great interview too. That's yeah. the thing. If you go in with everything, yeah. if you're prepared, if you're lined up, there was gold there. There were moments, right? And there ended up being like politically, majorly significant gold. It's amazing. So, you know, I was all set to come in here and say, that's what made the difference between the Vulture article with Quincy Jones and the GQ article with Quincy Jones, which we were also passing around with with delight. Yes. Um, is that sort of third person-ness. But in fact, there is a, a Q&A portion, a substantial Q&A portion in the GQ one as well. Uh, but it's structured more like a profile. There are bits and paragraphs that are, you know, set the scene and lull you into places and then like lengthy digressions about Michael Jackson's snake. I mean, I, I, <laughs> come on. And the e original E.T. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry. Well, well, that, that's what's amazing, right? Like in that long article – each of us can kind of have our favorite moments. But in the Vulture article, uh, which, you know, people are saying was viral, which is amazing that like a print article can go viral at this point. Um, it, it's everybody is saying the same thing, right? Everybody is saying no playing motherfuckers, which is <laughs> there's no greater glory, really. <laughs> there's another great line. It was like, what was that? Um, the minute Ciroc and Fat Farm show up, God walks out of the room. Oh, that was great. <laughs> right? Um, no, I, this is the second week in a row that we've shouted out a writer, um, magazine writer who's done a Q&A style interview. Last week it was Manny Jacinto. Jacinto, did we get a pronouncer on, uh, Manny's last name? Uh, somebody was, somebody was advocating for, uh, Jacinto on Twitter. Okay. Uh, Manny, Jay. <laughs> um, Who is, and, of course, not the interviewer, but what the interviewee. That's right. In a GQ piece about a show called The Good Place, which Elaine has not seen. Right. Anyway, we were very complimentary about that interview as well and the way it was structured and the information that came out. And that interview was done by Kevin Wen. Um, shout out to you, Kevin. You shouted us out on Twitter. Um, uh, thank you very much. Um, but... The point is, is that this is the second week in a row we've, we've done something like this where we've, you know, wanted to highlight the work of people in entertainment journalism who are doing great work and putting in the work. Um, and it's pretty exciting. Well, yeah. I mean, there's more and more access available all the time, as we know, to celebrities, to pieces, to whatever. So if it's notable enough for us all to stop and take it in kind of as a unit, it's because it's really great. So while we're at it, um, we've also, we haven't mentioned her by name, but we've mentioned several interviews that she's done. Vulture's Jada Wan has also done great work in this respect. Her interviews or her profiles of celebrities are a little bit different. It's not the Q&A style. She writes, you know, the piece that's more descriptive and she, like, you know, the poll quotes go in there. But... Um, yeah, uh, there is so much great work out there being done by, like, vibrant, young, interesting writers. Um, I love that we're living in this time, and I hope that, like, this kind of work can continue. I mean, I will say something that's going to annoy you so much right now, uh, but on uh, our various 
live blog chats through the days, like our text threads, like I will always stop for a great profile, a great interview. So definitely tweet them at us, send them to us. I will then interrupt your day by sending them to you when you are trying to work. Uh, and then inevitably you're like, I'm saving it. No, I'm not. I'm opening it. Uh, and we go back and forth. Oh, I, I think I straight up harassed you with Quincy like last week and this week. I, particularly with the first GQ one, I was like, oh my God, you got to read this. And then at, at, it was like 10 o'clock at night. And at that point you were like, fine. And well, then no, 30 seconds excited. later you were like, what the fuck? I mean, actually, to actually you again – Actually, I, believe, I remember me bullying you. Into I believe this. you praised me for taking lo- a long time to read it. You were pleased it wasn't a a, a rush job. Send us more. We can argue about them at length. And finally, the one we did not argue about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and finally, uh, now that you've stopped giggling, have I though? <laughs> have I though? So your pitch, one hundred percent. Um, I'm still not sure uh, how it is a pure show your work. I can see the work and the research, but it isn't how is like it not show your work. <laughs> but I don't know if it's the kind of work that we spend a lot of time with here on show your work because it's like not paid work, it's not career work, but it is a level of work that, uh, as they say, apologies if this is not appropriate coming from me, work that is for the culture. I mean, to me, this is God's work and the internet work <laughs> coming together in all its glory. Here's what I did not expect to see last night. Last night, the night before. Uh, somebody on the internet decided to find the exact date of the day Ice Cube refers to in his song, Today Was a Good Day. <laughs> Just waking up in the morning, gotta thank God. I don't know, but today seems kinda odd. No barking from the dog, no smog. And mama cooked the breakfast with no hog. I got my grub on, but didn't dig out. Finally got a call from a girl I wanna dig out. Hooked it up for later as I hit the dope. Thinking, will I live another 24? So, that was the song. It's a famous song. Yeah, like it's... Yeah. But nobody knew what fucking day Ice Cube was talking about. Well, I don't think anybody <laughs> thought it was a particular day. Right. It didn't have to be a day. It was just a song. Like, just- this was back in the days when songs were just songs and they didn't have to be days. And then somebody on the internet thought better of it. So somebody decided to do a deep dive and investigate what day... In 1992, Ice Cube could possibly have been referring to. Well, I don't even know if they knew it was 92 at first. I It says here uh, that the person uh, was Hip Hop Fights Back. Uh, that's their online handle, I guess, or the, or the umbrella under which this important work <laughs> is being done. And they break it down by clue. Using the lyrics. So, first clue. Here's the lyric. Went to Short Dog's house. They was watching Yo! MTV raps. So. Then they go on to decode it. They decode it. MTV raps. They went back, did the research, first aired August 6th, 1988. 
So we are looking at a period that had to have been after August 6, 1988, which, okay, like. Are you feeling <laughs> X-Files about this? Okay. Clue number two. Ice Cube's single, Today Was a Good Day, was released on February 23rd, 1993. So now we've narrowed it down to a five-year period. We have a window. <laughs> okay, so clue number three. The Lakers beat the Supersonics. So that's the lyric. <laughs> Followed by dates between Yo! MTV Rap's first air date, August 6, 1988, and the release of the single, February 23, 1993, where the Lakers beat the Supersonics. There are 12. <laughs> so there are 12 times during which the Lakers beat the Supersonics in a five-year span. So we have 12 dates. We've narrowed it down from five years to 12 specific exact dates. Now, that's just not uh, 12 times they played. That's just 12 times that the Lakers beat them. There are no ties, as far as I can see here. That's right. They also include the scores, if you want to look it up. Now, clue number four is, of those 12 days where the Lakers beat the Supersonics... <laughs> 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 which the which of those games were played on days where there was no smog in LA? So now we've gone from sports historical schedules to meteorological say it. Meteorological sure. ar like archives. Sure, because of course that is another line. It was a clear day with no smog. So then there are four dates listed. <laughs> But you, they had to go to the Weather Network, like, library. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no Weather Network because there was no right. internet. So, they went to the regular library. Right. So they went to the weather, they went to the regular library, I don't know, flipped through the newspapers every night and like, checked which days didn't have smog. If there is a meteorological library, can you imagine how excited <laughs> the librarian was when they walked in? They were like, so we have this project. <laughs> okay. So these people have now <laughs> gone to the weather library <laughs> or the regular library and looked at the weather pages. Like this is everything you hoped cereal was going to be, isn't it? Like they're tracking down clues. They're closing in. Clue number five. So now we are down to four days. Clue number five. Here's the lyric. Got a beep from Kim and she can fuck all night. So, <laughs> beepers weren't adopted by mobile phone companies until the 1990s. Dates left where mobile beepers were available to the public. There are only two, and they are January 18th, 1991, or January 20th, 1992. The fact that they're both in January is when you know this was written in L.A. Because you can't have a clear day with no smog in New mm, York, you know? That's right. So, okay, so we've narrowed it down from four days because you toss the two game days that happened in the 80s because beepers, right, right? Right. So now there are two days in the 90s, clue number six. Which is the final clue, by the way. Ice Cube starred in the film Boys in the Hood that was released late summer of 1991, but was being filmed mid-late 1990, early 91, and Ice Cube was busy on set filming the movie January 18, 1991, too busy to be lounging around the streets with no plans. <laughs> Tell me that's not work. <laughs> so now they've gone from the sports historical archives to the weather library. 
And now they've pulled up film schedules. They went to the Hollywood Film Center where they keep all the old call sheets to figure out what the film schedule was on Boys in the Hood. And they determined that Ice Cube would have been working on one of the two remaining dates. I mean, I assume they called John Singleton. Like, I assume they were calling up the director or some script supervisor somewhere who's like, let me dig out that call sheet. I love this. I love that you think there's a library for every single one of these items. Like, I can just see that in your world, they're walking from library to library, like all the museums in Washington. Well, as you said, I mean, there was no internet. So how else, like, and I'm not sure that, like, the people who do the internet these days, while the internet is so great, like, who's filing the call sheet dates from fucking 1991 on the set of Boys in the Hood? I don't think anybody is. I would happily watch the making of the making of Today Was a Good Day. Anyway, the point is some some fucking shit needed to be done to make these six clues happen and to narrow it down to uh, January 20th, 1992, National Good Day Day. Because as they point out, is the only day where Yo! MTV Raps was on the air. It was a clear and smogless day. Beepers were commercially sold. Lakers beat the Supersonics. And Ice Cube had no events to attend to. I'm... Quoting directly. So that he could lounge around with his boys. January 20th, 1992. This is some serious, serious work. You owe it to yourself to like, just go and look at the way they broke it down. So humble, so unassuming. And we've come full circle. That is Hermione Granger level of work. Libraries and research. When in doubt, go to the library, track it down. Find the meteorological librarian who has been waiting for you to arrive. What is your Ice Cube Good Day project? Personally? Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, that's a good one. Oh. You know, there's a, uh, oh, that's a, uh, there's a really obscure book that I read as a kid about a young woman growing up in Portland. And there are all these Portland, like, I can, uh, like, all these Portland landmarks. And she rode her bike. She was a page turner in an orchestra. And she rode her bike to get to all her gigs. And I was always a bit skeptical that she was allowed to ride her bike around all the time. And, like, sometimes she was riding around at three in the morning seeing people playing their violin. So I would probably go on, like, a bike tour of Portland to see if it was possible if I didn't get lazy. Maybe. I don't to think about this one. What's yours? I See, I don't know. And I think not to be all Pollyanna, but to put it out there to everybody else, I think like that's going to be the project is what is your Ice Cube Good Day? Yeah. What What's your Ice Cube Good Day project? Yeah. What is the thing you are burning to know? Yeah. Love that. And how much like to the point where you are going to be willing to dedicate this much work and investigative energy <laughs> into Maybe that should be our homework, not just for this week, but like for going forward. Shouldn't we all have one? Yeah, but then what? Then when you reach such a height (laughs) as this, what else can they possibly figure out? I don't know. But right now, it's a good thing to have. It's a good thing to have. Like, I think that that we should all aspire to have something like this. (laughs) 
It's a good thing to have. I We could do worse than that. Like I said, Pollyanna, but I'm happy. I'm not mad at ending on that note. Always hit us up with your emails, your thoughts, your arguments, your rants. Uh, we're on Twitter. We are on Instagram. You can find us. You can tell us we're not as good as Will Smith. And definitely check us out on Google Play and iTunes. Leave your comments. We will be back next week. Work hard. Bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.